You are listening to episode 11 of Full Share, a trader's tale from the golden age of the Solar Clipper, written and read by Nathan Lowell. Chapter 20, Nile System, 2352, August 1. The watchstander didn't have to do much to get me moving in the morning. I was anxious to get up to the bridge and start cutting up the audio. I had the normal daily stuff to deal with first. Backup, securing the logs, checking for systems problems. I had that all cleared up by 0800 and pulled the audio I'd gotten from Sarah off my tablet. Mr. Von Nichols showed me how and where to mount the headset so I could listen and edit without disturbing the bridge crew. By the time I got done clipping, cutting, splicing, and arranging, the watch was almost over and I'd parlayed the half a stand of recording into almost two stands of Lois and Payne. About halfway through, Mr. Von Nichols came over to listen to some of it. "'Who's the voice?' he asked. "'Sarah Krug. "'She's good,' he said. "'You think she sounds a little too real? "'Too much like Lois?' "'No,' he said. "'Too much like a person.' "'He took my tablet over to the air vent "'and recorded almost a full tick of blower sounds. "'Here, load that.' "'When I'd done so, he showed me how to mask the voice and blower together "'so it sounded like the blower was speaking. "'I knew what it was, and it still made the hair on my arm stand up. "'I tried to imagine what that would sound like "'down in the environmental section, late in the watch with nobody else around.' "'Sar?' I said. "'Yes, Mr. Huang. "'If you think I am seriously disturbed, but you come up with that, "'well, Sar, you flatter me. "'Thank you, Mr. Huang. I like you too,' he said with a grin. "'The watch was over about the time I was done with the audio editing. "'I had just time to load it in the system storage space I'd prepared for it "'in Brill's system account before it was time to head down to the galley for lunch "'and then over to the office for my last full-share exam.' When I got to the mess deck, C.C. was there with the rest of the environmental team, so I just gave Brill a nod and a wink and sat with Art James and David Bendauer, my bunkies. They were good guys, both of them. Art wasn't the brightest bulb in the place, but he had more heart than any three of the professors I'd known on Neris. Mom excluded, of course. David was a good-natured guy who didn't let much bother him and seemed to move from moment to moment without letting any one of them affect him too much as they passed. Lunch was my favorite chicken and pasta dish, and I enjoyed it so much I went back for seconds. Cookie was beaming at the back of the galley, and I gave him a nod and a thumbs up on the meal. It was delicious. He took such good care of us. At 13.30, I presented myself at the office and found Mr. Von Nichols waiting with a funny grin. He didn't offer any explanations, but set me to work on the cargoman exam that would round out my full collection. Knowing it was my last one for a while, I sank into it and just let the experience happen. When I surfaced around 1500, I looked up at him with a grin. How'd I do? Uh, you missed two, he said, and he turned the screen around so I could see the 96. Behind me, the room erupted in applause, and it startled me so much I almost fell into Mr. Von Nichols. I turned to find the captain, Miss Avro, Mr. Kelly, Mr. Cotton, and Brill standing just inside the door. And the passageway outside was full as well. They were all clapping and cheering. It was crazy. When it finally died down, the captain said, Mr. Maxwell is on watch, but sends his compliments as well. It's not every spacer who sets himself the task of becoming full share rated in every division on the ship, and those that do usually live to regret it. She was smiling and looking very proud. I knew, of course, that she and Mr. Maxwell were the only other people on the ship to have a full set of ratings. I felt like I was in pretty august company right then. Congratulations, Mr. Huang, and uh, happy birthday. Everybody had to shake my hand and wish me happy birthday then, and it got to be quite a scene. When they all finally cleared out, it was down to Mr. Von Nichols and me. You set that up, didn't you, Sar? I said. Yes, Mr. Huang, I did. Thank you, Sar, I told him. Now, if you'll excuse me, sir, I need to see a woman about a puka. Dismiss Mr. Huang, he said formally, and then he smiled and held out his hand. Congratulations, Ish, and happy birthday. Thanks, I said, and I shook his hand. It didn't take long for Francis and me to finish rigging the extra speakers back in the environmental section, and I showed Brill where and how to trigger the audio. 
I created three programs for her to use. The first was a few seconds of Sarah's quiet sobbing in various permutations. The sobs faded in and out over a full stand, and I had it rigged so that the sobbing track would run on a random cycle. The second was a collection of Please Stop, You're Hurting Me, again in various flavors and permutations, from very faint to less faint, but none very loud. The last was a mix of the two with sobs and please stops interspersed. The dynamic range on this third one was medium to loud. I had her play a few snippets of each to test it, and both Diane and Francis were looking a little shaken by the experience. My gods, Ishmael, Diane said, that's positively frightful. Are you trying to scare him to death? I shook my head. Just put the fear of Lois in him. I was trying to add some threats, but I thought the pitiful sobbing would work just as well, especially as it gets louder. By then it was time for me to hit the track and get my sauna in before the evening watch. Mr. Colby would be meeting the puka at the best possible time to make a lasting impression, mid-watch in the deep dark. The plan was to let the sobbing run for a week, just to soften him up, and then start the second tier with the specific, please stop hurting me. We didn't count on Sarah. After a couple of days of watches, with the sobbing fading in and out of his watch-standing hours, C.C. was looking a little less sure of himself when he showed up on the mess deck. I don't know when it started, but about four days into it, I noticed that when C.C. went through the mess line, Sarah leaned over to him and said something. Pip, who was standing beside her, was grinning. Whatever it was she said, it spooked Cece even worse. I made a mental note to ask him what she said. While the environmental haunting went on, I went back to trying to find the problem that had crashed shipnet and almost killed us. What I needed was more information, because what I had from the ship's logs wasn't enough. A week and a half out of Nile, I went to find Rebecca Salsman in engineering berthing. Mitch grinned and Rebecca smiled when I stuck my head in my old quad. Are you lost? Mitch asked. Well, yeah, in a way, I told him. I'm working on the system failure we had coming into Betris. Can you two look at something and tell me what I'm missing? They both shrugged, and Rebecca said, I'll look at anything you want to show me, big fella, in that heavy G growl she had. She had a big grin on her face because she knew what that voice did to me. Behave, I told her with a laugh. I'll try to work here. Sorry, she said, but she didn't look at Mitch just sighed and shook his head with a grin. I played them the delayed graphic on my tablet a couple of times. Rebecca was watching intently and said, I've seen this. Mr. Kelly watches it over and over, him and every other officer on the ship. We're missing something obvious. Why obvious, she asked. Because as devious as this group of officers is, they'd have spotted something tricky by now. What's it supposed to be showing, Mitch asked. Those are all the component failures from five ticks before we went through the EMP, I said. I plotted them by location and time, reduced the time scale so every tenth of a second real time is one second on the display. That's why it seems so slow, he said, nodding to himself. Rebecca and I just looked at each other, and Rebecca shrugged. Yes, Mitch, that's right, I said. That's why it seems so slow. Play it again, he asked. I shrugged and keyed it. So, this is what broke, he said, after the cycle had run again. Yeah, do you see anything? He shook his head. No, he said, and laid back on his bunk. Rebecca shrugged helplessly. I don't know what to tell you, Ish. I didn't spot anything either. Thanks, guys, I said. I appreciate the time. Mitch grinned up at me. No problem, Mitch. You sure you won't move back? He nodded at Rebecca. She's been moping around since you left and been asking me if I have any blue jeans. What's that about? Rebecca threw a pillow at him. She was blushing, but she was giggling. For his part, Mitch had a monster grin going and just threw the pillow back at her. We all had a good chuckle, even Rebecca. Anytime you want to move back, yes, you can sleep on top of me, she said with a wicked grin. Rebecca, Mitch snorted. What? Up there? She pointed to the unclaimed upper above her. You got a dirty mind, Mitch Fitzroy, she said with a grin. Jennifer Agato, one of the machinists from the power section, spoke from the other side of the partition then. Well, he didn't when he moved in there, you hussy. You got it all dirty for him. We all had another laugh, and I think Rebecca laughed hardest of all. I was about to leave when Mitch said, That's only the stuff that failed, right? Yeah, I said, why? Well, a lot of stuff didn't fail. If you add that somehow, maybe it'll tell you something.
Rebecca looked at him like he'd sprouted a second head. How can you tag something that didn't happen? He shrugged. I don't know, but when we started getting the shipnet back online, lots of systems were just waiting to be powered up. They'd not been damaged at all. I thought about that for a full tick. Thanks, Mitch. You're onto something there. Rebecca looked startled. He is? Yeah, I just don't know how or what, but it's something to try besides just running the same clip over and over. I took that idea to the bridge with me for the afternoon's watch and started going back through the logs. We're still a week out of Nile when I went to lunch and saw Brill, Diane, and Francis all grinning. Smiling in anticipation, I got my lunch and joined them. And what's the cause of this joyous gathering? I asked. Brill said quietly, Mr. Colby did his maintenance last night. Diane added just as quietly, and he did a first-rate job of it, too. I smiled. Excellent. You should probably kill the sob track for tonight, then, I said. Brill nodded. Already done. Think it'll stick? asked Francis. Well, hard to say, I said, but you can always turn it on again. Just then, Cece came through the mess line. He looked horrible, like he hadn't slept in a week. His ship suit had a big smear of something on it that could have been anything, and I wasn't sure I wanted to know what. He seemed almost afraid of Sarah as he approached the line, and sure enough, Sarah leaned forward and said something to him. Pip's expression changed from a big smile to confusion, as Cece smiled and thanked her before moving on down the line. What was that? I wondered aloud. Brill had seen it, too. I don't know, but it looked strange. I got up and went for coffee, swinging by to have a quiet word with Pip, and then I came back to the table and sat down. Well, I think perhaps it might stick, I noted. What happened? Francis asked. Well, Pip says for the last few days, every time C.C. went through the mess line, Sarah had something to say to him. I noticed that too, said Brill, but I never got around to asking Sarah or Pip. Pip just told me she's been saying things like, Remember Matthew? Remember Matthew? Diane asked. And then comprehension dawned. Wasn't he on the Matthew Bolton? Brill and I both said yep at the same time. How did she know he was on the Matthew Bolton? Diane asked. I don't know. Maybe she overheard it. It's not a secret. Brill asked, so what did she say today? Well, according to Pip, she said, Lois thanks you. We all just sat there and ate our meals in silence for a long while. At one point, Brill said to me, that girl is spookier than you are. Diane looked at me for a long moment before turning back to Brill and saying, you know, I think it's a draw. Chapter 21, Nile Orbital, 2352, August 15. Those last few days of approach to Nile were at once spectacular and frustrating. It seemed like we were zooming in on the planet in a matter of days and then just hung out there, inching in for days on end. It really wasn't that long, but it seemed it. It had been a long trip from Betris, eight weeks, and the crew was all ready to go ashore again. So was I, truth be told. The image of Wendy wearing nothing but a satisfied grin and a sheen of sweat was popping into my brain more and more. Third section had the midwatch before docking. I'd been wrestling with what Mitch had said for a week and making no progress. About halfway through the watch, I stood up and walked to the bow to look at the orbital creeping in. We'd be docked before the day was out, and after eight weeks of analysis, we were no closer to understanding what had happened, let alone how. Sure, we knew the outcome. We had burned boards aplenty and some crisped-out electrical runs, too, but those were just the symptoms. We needed to know what had happened to cause that burning, and that's what we were missing. Problems-ish, Mr. Von Nichols said behind me. I turned to him and rested my elbows on the port combing. How do you mark something that didn't happen, sir? He blinked. You can't. Absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. Logical rule from the Dark Ages. What are you trying to do? It's a systems problem, sir. I said we've been gnawing on it for weeks. Yeah, he said. Any insight? I've been thinking the answer has to be something obvious, sir. Your logic, he asked with a grin. 
Well, the four most devious minds on this end of the galaxy have been looking at that graphic for weeks. If it were something tricky, one of you would have spotted it, sir. You'd think so, wouldn't you? He said in a considering tone. But don't sell yourself short. I hear the maintenance schedule is back on track and environmental. I chuckled. Remind me to tell you more about that, because I don't think I can take the credit, sir. Okay, he said. And he startled me by taking out his tablet and actually making a note. Back to the problem at hand, he said. Why does it have to be something obvious? Well, if it's not something tricky, what's left, sir? I asked. Well, that's obvious, he said with a grin. You see my point then, sir? I smiled and continued. Well, the first thing that occurred to me was that if the data weren't telling us what we needed to know, then either we had too much, too little, or the wrong data. Obviously, he said, warming to the discussion. So I took the graphic down to Engineering Birthing to ask Rebecca Salzman if she saw anything missing. Did she? No, sir, I said, but Mitch Fitzroy was there, and he made an interesting observation. Mitch? Don't sell him short, sir. He may have the answer if we can just figure out how to find a look at it, sir. Are you going to keep stringing me along, Mr. Huang? The watch will be over in a couple of stands, and I'm kind of hoping to find out how this story ends before then, he said with a grin. Mitch observed that the graphic only shows what failed, sir, I told him. Obviously, he said with a grin. Then he suggested we should look at what didn't fail. Mr. Von Nichols went absolutely still. It was like a freeze-frame hollow he was so still. I don't think he even blinked or breathed he was so still. Obviously, he said at last. I shrugged. You see my dilemma, sir. How to track what didn't fail, he said. Yes, sir. What an interesting problem, he mused to himself. What was his rationale for that, did he say? Mitch, sir? Well, he said something like, when we started bringing up the ship net, lots of stuff was waiting for us to power back up. Maybe you should look at what didn't fail, I told him. I can't be sure of the exact words, but that's the gist of it. He's right, Mr. Von Nichols said. And it's obvious, he added with a grin. I saw it then, or rather heard it, as I listened to what I'd been saying in my brain. Waiting for us to power it back up, I said. Exactly, Mr. Huang. Obviously, Mr. Von Nichols. I started digging through the logs again. It was a lot of data. First section relieved us on time, and we just about had a chance to grab breakfast before setting navigation detail. I saw Mr. Von Nichols have a small conversation with Mr. Maxwell, Mr. Kelly, and the captain. And at one point, Mr. Kelly said, Mitch? In disbelief, so I knew what they were talking about. While they were chatting, I brought up the system schematic and started monitoring the systems and communications traffic the way Mr. Von Nichols had on the way out of Petrus. Eight weeks of watches with my head in the console, sometimes literally, had been an education in its own right. I'd known I had a knack for dealing with what my mother called the damn devil boxes, but working with Mr. Von Nichols had showed me new levels that I didn't even know existed. I sucked it up with a straw. Sure, it was work, but it was fun work. I rather enjoyed the notion of being paid to have fun. We had that same kind of performance feeling on the bridge as we docked, but this time it was a slow unraveling as we shut systems down, furled the sails, retracted the grav keel. The kickers came online and nudged us to where the tugs would be able to guide us in, and eventually the nose of the lowest just kissed the docking ring and the locking clamps snapped down to make us part of the structure of the station itself. It seemed like such a delicate grasp to hold the mass of the ship and the cargo, but it did. Finally the systems were secured and the ship came to rest. Make the announcement, Mr. Paw, the captain said. Secure from navigation detail, first section, has the watch. She waited for Fong to finish before turning to Mr. Maxwell. You may declare liberty at your discretion, Mr. Maxwell, she said. Thank you, Captain. Make the announcement, Mr. Paw. Mr. Von Nichols surprised me by stepping up to my station and saying, I wonder if you'd be able to meet me in the lock and about a stand, Mr. Huang. I have a little procurement problem I'd like your help with. Of course, sir. Frankly, I was a little disappointed. I'd been hoping to grab some bunk time before heading up to flea market to see what Niall had to offer, but Mr. Von Nichols was always good for a surprise. Today was no exception. Bev had the watch and checked us out with a grin. You watch out for him, Mr. Von Nichols. 
Oh, he said. Why is that, Miss Aerith? You've been working with him for the last eight weeks, and you have to ask, sir. He grinned. I see your point, Miss Aerith, and I'll take your warning under advisement. We were both chuckling as we stepped out into the stinging cold of the docks. We headed for the list, and I still had no idea where we were headed. Excuse me, sir, but can I ask where we're going? Lee, he said. Excuse me, sir? I asked. Try excuse me, Lee-ish, he said. We're off ship and off duty, and I think we can leave all that sar stuff at the lock, don't you? Why, yes, I think we can, I said for some reason inordinately pleased with this. After all, you didn't call Alicia Alvarez sar when you were on station, did you? Well, not in the bar, I replied. Not in the bar, he began, and then stopped and looked at me with a grin. You never cease to amaze me, Ishmael, he said. We'd reached the lift then, and Mr. Von Nichols, Lee, punched the O2 button. We're going to purchase something down on the O2 level, I asked. Yep, he said with a grin. And after a moment, he turned to me and asked, You called her Sar? Not in the bar, Lee, not in the bar. The lift stopped at O2 and we got off. It was mid-afternoon station time, so my internal clock was thrown for a loop already, having been up for the mid-watch and all morning with navigation detail. I was actually thinking that lunch sounded good, but station time would indicate something more like dinner. I followed Lee around to port, and he ducked into a quiet bar not terribly far from the lift. The sign over the door said Shaughnessy's, and the interior was dark wood analog and not quite leather. It looked good, though, and I began to understand what Lee wanted help procuring. We settled at a table, and he ordered a small pitcher of a medium ale. You don't mind helping me with this beer, do you? He asked with a grin. Well, it's kind of early in the day, isn't it? I asked. Well, we've been working for the last ten stands. We're off duty, it's coming up on evening here, and we've earned it, he said. Your basic objection is based on what? Well, since you put it that way, Lee, I said I guess it's based on nothing more than the artificial constraints of an arbitrary time frame. Exactly my point, Ishmael. The waitress brought the pitcher, and Lee did the honors with a certain amount of flair and obvious expertise. You called her Sar, he asked again as he was pouring. Well, only when she gave me an order, I told him. <laughs> when she gave you an order? And he started grinning and pushed a glass in my direction. I shrugged. She was quite demanding, I said. I did my very best to comply, I added. I bet you did, Ishmael, he shorted. He raised his glass and toasted. To satisfying, demanding women. I tapped my glass to his and drank deeply. That was a toast I could get behind. We settled back for what appeared to be a rather extensive section of procurement, and he asked, So what happened in environmental? I told him that story while we finished that picture and ordered a new one. He laughed when I told him about Sarah reminding him of Matthew. Did we ever get that packet from them, by the way? I asked. You mean an answer from the Bolton? he asked. Yeah, did they respond? Lee shrugged. It was rather noncommittal, actually. They were having disciplinary problems with him, and there were a couple of close calls in environmental, basically what we ran into. But? I prompted. But there was nothing in his personnel jacket, which we already knew, and the chief engineer just said there was no evidence of foul play. Absence of evidence, I began. Yeah, exactly. Did they try to fire him? They were going to give him one more leg to shape up or ship out, and then he was injured and has been sponging off the company ever since. So much for my conspiracy theories, I said. Maybe yes, maybe no, he said over the rim of his beer. Oh? I asked. And I really liked the tell-me-more quality of that oh. The practice was beginning to pay off. Well, there are no Colbys on the board or anything, he started. But? But his mother is Charlotte Colby, of the New Farnook Colbys. Beyond Federated Freight's home office being in New Farnook, that doesn't mean anything, I shrugged. I'm a bumpkin, remember? High society. VIP on the New Farnook circuit, he said. I think I see where you're going. Ex-mistress of Alvin T. Merrick, he said. The chairman of the board, New Farnook Development Corporation, Alvin T. Merrick, I asked. Small galaxy, huh? 
Would he have interfered? I asked. Lee shrugged. Don't know, but I'm glad we don't have to find out. Merrick might not be his father, I pointed out. True, he agreed and sipped his beer, but I'm still glad we don't have to find out. Amen, I toasted. We clinked, drained, and put the glasses down. He nodded and we stood up and headed back to the ship. As we approached the lock, he turned to me. Thanks, Ish. I hate to drink alone. You're welcome, Lee. Anytime I can help you out with these little procurement issues, please let me know. Next time I'll buy, I said with a grin. He keyed the lock and said almost admiringly, You called her Sar. I said, It only seemed polite under the circumstances. Thanks for listening to Full Share, a trader's tale from the golden age of the solar clipper. Music is from the Fox Hunters, an Irish slip jig originally recorded in 1984 by James Curran and available on the Internet Archive at www.archive.org. This has been a presentation from Durandus, offered under Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 2.5 License. For a website and more information on the Golden Age, visit www.durandus.org/golden.